0: And gospel with Dr. Halista Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. We have Pesach in our rearview mirror. We are headed toward Shavuot, and it seems, again, here lately, the last several weeks, we've been focusing on Shavuot in the Song of Songs. So just to kind of summarize, the thing that we see running through here is a common thread. I said, if you need purification, if you need healing from disease, if you need restoration, if, if you need that resurrection, see, once you're outside of the camp, you're kind of dead. You're not, you're not just in a bad position. It's like you're a dead person walking. That's the way that it's viewed. And so should you be healed, then there has to be this process of restoration. And we got those details in the Torah portions. But what all these things have in common is that you have to go through a human priest. That's the pattern. We go through a human priest. And by looking at the the Levitical priesthood, we can understand Yeshua. We can see the type in the shadow of Yeshua. Mark and Tammy call it patterns and principles. And it's, it's very similar to the way that you read prophecy. We, we never ask, when was this prophecy fulfilled? We always ask, how many times was it? Because mm-hmm. as you read through scripture, you say, now, wait a minute, did not this already happen? Did not this already happen? And will these things happen again? Yes, they will. Because reading the book of Revelation, uh, and we'll start next week, because I've got my Passover Haggadah keyed to the book of Revelation, mainly the first three chapters of Revelation. But should we continue, we'll get all the plagues too. Everything we've seen before, we'll see again. Is it identical? No. And that's what we know about prophecy. When we see it again, it will not be identical to the last time he did it, but it will have the pattern and the principle. It will have the type and the shadow. So that when you do see it again in your generation, you can identify what's happening. You can go back to those preliminary scriptures and say, okay, this, is, this helps me prepare. This helps me to understand what's happening to me now. So, yes, expect things to be similar. Don't expect them to be identical. And I think we're going to need to know this because revelation is really heavy on no one clean thing will come into it. It's big on that. Ezekiel is big on that. No one clean thing will come into the holy city. And so we should expect there to be a lot of similarity in these patterns and principles. So what you would do, remember, you had to go through a human priest. You're going to bring your various offerings, whatever they are, to the doorway of the tent of meeting. That's where everything starts to, you know, kind of, you start the gears moving when you arrive at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And then depending on the type of offering that you've brought, the purpose of it, that service is going to work its way inward. And remember what we said about the divine presence. Why was it so strong in the Holy of Holies? Why was it so strong in the holy place? Why was it so strong in the courtyard? But you see how moving out, it became less manifest until finally it gets out into the tribal encampments. Is it among the people? Yes, it is. He says, I want to dwell among them. But does he dwell among them with the same magnitude as, say, what the high priest would feel in the holy place when he does the menorah service and the incense service or when he goes into the holy of holies? It's not the same. It's it's a I hate to say watered down, but it's less intense. It's less heavy. And the way the rabbis help us understand how that works, so they say, think of the ocean. There's a lot of power out there. But when that ocean, when the tide pushes the water of the ocean into, say, a a sea cave, you've been on vacation somewhere, maybe you've seen a sea cave, and how when that water comes in with that tide and the wave, there's a lot of power right here in this small place. Is it still powerful out there? Sure it is. But Would it absolutely wipe you out if you got in front of it right here? It would. It's the same water, but it's the narrowing of the aperture. So when the divine presence, you see it heavier in the holy of holies or heavier in the holy place than maybe out in the courtyard or out in the camp. That's one way of describing how that spirit going through a smaller space, a holier space is going to be more powerful. So you need the bronze altar to purge out the sin to provide the atonement, to provide the covering. However, there's there's a very good reason why the coals were never to go out on the brazen altar. If they ever went out on the brazen altar, you could not do the incense service. You had to take the coals from the brazen altar, from those offerings, and they became the flame that you're going to put the incense on to go into this holy place where the, the presence is much more powerful. And that's why I say you rethink that going boldly into the throne room thing. If you have not had those sins purged out here, the guilt purged out here, if you've not said thank you out here, probably the last thing you do want to do is go boldly into the throne room. You want to make sure that you're following the patterns and the principles. So there's a, a purging that takes place out here in the courtyard. And then they take those coals and they go in and they do the incense service with those coals on the golden incense altar. And that's why you see Nadav and Avihu, they didn't have nearly the grace as the rest of the camp because of where they went. They went into the sea cave, right? The presence is much more powerful there and and the smaller mistakes count. So how did the, the high priest dress? Well, we know Yom Kippur was a different day. He had to change clothes a lot of times on Yom Kippur. But on a typical day, we know that he's going to wear garments of glory where the other priests are going to wear white. He'll, he'll have the more beautiful garments because each of these things in some way is representing the children of Israel and the commandments as submitted to the Holy One, which is signified by the crown or the seed. The so he had to wear a turban-like head cover. The Hebrew word implies that you're wrapping it, like it goes in a circular motion. Sometimes it's referred to as a crown because there's a golden plate for the high priest. It's different from the other priest. He actually has a little crown that goes across and holds it in place. And one of the other essentials is going to be a belt or a sash, which the other priests will have this too. Even if they're just wearing the linen garments, they need the belt or the sash. Without those, he could not perform the service. He has to have something on his head and he has to have the belt. Or the sash. That's in contrast to what we read today. If you're in big trouble, if you have a a mark, what's called leprosy or tzarat, uh, leprosy makes you think it's a human-oriented disease. It's not. It was considered to be a divinely placed disease. It's it's not Hansen's disease. It might have some similar effects, but that's why they say there is no more tzarat today because there is no temple. It would only be inflicted upon someone when the priesthood and the temple was in place so that you could go through the process. So it's a supernatural disease. If you have been diagnosed with this divine affliction, we all know that the main reasons are going to be gossip, Lashon hurrah! pride, arrogance, uh, greed. I mean, it, it, the the mark can show up in your goods first. If It, it can, might show up on your saddle, your donkey saddle, might show up in the stones of your house, in your bedding. It, it could show up any number of places. But when it finally gets on you, it's because you weren't listening. That's the idea. It's, it's working out here first to get your attention. If you're still not repenting, then it'll finally end up on your skin. Once you're diagnosed, a couple of things have to happen. From now on, until you're purified, until you're purified of of this salauran, you have to let your hair go loose, and you have to wear torn clothes. And these are specifically two things that were forbidden to the priesthood. They cannot wear torn clothes, and they cannot let their hair go wild. Um, the, I think Joe Good does some really good uh, Bible studies on what does it mean about the priest's hair, because there's always the big debate, can men have long hair? Basically, it's they can't have wild hair, right? It it can't look disheveled. And so you would would never go into a holy space with disheveled hair or torn clothes because they were specifically identified with death and mourning. You don't bring death and mourning into a holy place. And three references for this are going to be Leviticus 10.6, Leviticus 13.45, and then Leviticus 21.10. Do not uncover your heads nor nor tear your clothes so that you will not die and he will not become wrathful against the congregation. So, in other words, if a if a priest disobeyed this and went into the holy places without his head covered, and if he went in with torn clothes, it wouldn't just affect the priest, it would affect the entire congregation. We don't usually get things that serious, like, well, if I'm sinning, it's just hurting me. Well, no, if you're sinning, you you if you were a priest, you're hurting somebody else too. Just like when David took census, he wasn't supposed to take. Did that just hurt David? No, I killed a bunch of people. So there's there's really no such thing as a victimless crime when it comes to sin. So what's the moral of the story? I mean, you notice we're going very fast. If you're ministering on behalf of others, what's the pattern or principle? Then you have fewer rights and you have more responsibilities. Isn't that pretty much the way... Everywhere as parents, don't you have fewer rights than your children and much more responsibility? (laughs) It kind of heaps up on you, doesn't it? They can have a tantrum, but you can't. Well, maybe they can't. It depends on how old they are. Maybe they can't have a tantrum. But your job is to atone and to cover for them, to intercede for them, to help them to grow up. Just like, why would you go through a priest if you knew you had a mark of tzara? What was the point of going to a priest and not, say, a physician? because he has the word, he has the Torah. That's what's going to heal you from Sarat. It's not going to be antibiotics. It's not going to be vaccines. It's not going to be any of these things because it's not a natural disease. You need somebody who knows the word. He can send his word and heal you. And typically at this time, it's going to be the priests and the Levites who are going to be the most have the most access to the word and be able to diagnose your spiritual condition. But because of this special responsibility, they're not given the, the right to mourn and grieve the same as other people. A close relative, yes, but you can't bring grief and mourning into the holy spaces. So if you're ministering on behalf of someone else, it's, it's kind of like, like we're working at the prison. No matter what you see, you just act like it's all cool. Like, you've seen that before and everything's going to be just fine. <laughs> when you're inside, you're thinking this is not going to be fine. <laughs> it's the same way with, with the priesthood. No matter what's going on in the holy spaces, everything has to look and reflect heaven. To what the people perceive with their eyes. And so what does it have to do with us? As a long time ago. It was far away and there's no temple. We, we just want to take a few bullet points. We want to take the patterns and the principles, because I want to go back to what we read in Psalm 106, where it talks, it will actually, it reinforces what was already said of Abraham, that there was righteousness that was credited to him, even before he did particular things that would have been considered righteousness and faith, it was already in his account, it was on his books. And then in Psalm 106, we read that too, it was credited to him for righteousness, and so the as the apostles are teaching this doctrine to the congregations, it's not as though they're pulling this doctrine out of thin air. It's based on something that's long been in the, in the rabbinic understanding of what happened from Passover to Shavuot and until they finally made it into the land, that from Passover to Shavuot, righteousness was credited to them. They hadn't received the Torah yet. How can you be righteous if you don't even know what the rules are? How can you be righteous if you've never heard the instructions? Well, he put it in your account as if you were already fully righteous. He put it in there. So what are the working clothes that we need as we walk in this royal priesthood? Understanding we all have righteousness in our accounts that maybe we just don't fully deserve everything that's in there. That would be me. How are we to, how are we to think about this? Well, remember, it's instructions. They said, we will do and we will hear. Hearing implies, yes, obedience, but it also implies the, the willingness to learn. See, you can't obey what you don't know, but the agreement that you make at Sinai and you renew it every year at Shavuot, we will do and we will hear. Or, in, once they perceive the, the power, they said, uh, we will hear and we will do. <laughs> let us learn first because this is too heavy it's killing us and so they they switched it around and went to Moses and said Moses you go you go learn and then you you come teach us that's fine whichever way you have to learn it some things you can do them and that's when you'll understand other things don't wait till you understand it just do it if you will do it then you'll understand it other things if you do it before you understand it you might get it wrong especially since we're reading out of translation sometimes we miss big stuff because the the translations aren't helping us. However you need to learn, just understand that as you're walking through this wilderness of the peoples, there is a righteousness in your account as if you already understood and did it. Sometimes the only question is, are we keeping our promise to learn? And once we learn to do. See, we don't always keep our word. He keeps his word. He says, I'll put this this." Credit is in your account, no doubt. If we could see your books in heaven right now, that righteousness would be on your account if you were saved. The only question is, are you walking according to what's written in your account? Are you learning? So we need working clothes. They were given working clothes. The priest wore a head cover. I think this is related to what I'm calling the credit crown that we've been talking about, how when they said, we will do and we will hear that the angels came down and gave them crowns, credit crowns. You're, you're not functioning like a royal priesthood yet. You haven't learned everything, but here's your credit crown. You need an untorn garment. Your, your salvation should not be in question. You have been saved from the realm of death. A torn garment indicates that you have contacted the realm of death. And I think that explains to us why Yeshua's garment was left whole. If If he is our high priest, then his garment should not be torn. And his salvation for us will continue to be untorn into eternity. He will not allow us to be snatched out of his hand. And then there's this sash or this belt. What does it stand for? We know that it's a belt of truth. Paul identified that for us. What keeps you secure? The truth. If you were to go out in the world today, read a news article, turn on the television, listen to a debate, would the truth be in question? What's your only defense? Truth. Truth. And where do you find the truth? In the word. If you're not in the word, if you are educating and immersing yourself in the truths, quote unquote, of the world, you're not helping yourself. You're you're running around without a belt on. And you know what happens when you don't have your belt on? Your pants fall down. Okay. <laughs> we want everybody's pants up. We want belts on. Isn't this what you do at Pesach? He says, have your belt on, have your shoes on, have your staff in your hand, be ready to walk. He's He's foreshadowing the journey, and that journey is going to take them to Mount Sinai at Shavuot. It's going to form the axis of what's happening to them. In terms of the menorah, it'll be right here. It'll be the fourth feast. So they're going to come to Sinai. They're going to make an agreement. We will do and we will hear. They'll give their word, and they're going to learn how to serve as a kingdom of royal priests. And so if we want to understand these working clothes, then we should be able to go back to Mount Sinai and understand them. What's happening at Sinai? Well, we know what they left behind. They left behind Egypt at Passover. Associated with Passover is the feast, the first fruits of the barley. Barley is considered animal food. What is he doing? He's separating you from the beast. From the systems of the beast, he brings you out. Now you start walking. You've got your staff in your hand. You've got your belt on. You've got your shoes on. And you're telling yourself, don't complain. Don't complain. Don't complain. The food's fine. The food is fine. The water's fine. It's all fine. But we still make mistakes, right? But what's in your account? Righteousness. Even when you're not behaving like it, there is righteousness in your account. Will it still be there at Sukkot is the question. It was time for them to approach their Redeemer and to receive additional garments, and these crowns of a royal priesthood. And so the understanding is when they said, we will do and we will hear, the angels came down and they gave them each two crowns. But it's actually one crown. Why one? Because they spoke with one voice. Can you imagine that many people speaking exactly the same time? But they did. And when this happened, you say, okay, where does the belt come? I can see the, the garment of salvation. I can see that he's putting credits in their account for these additional robes of righteousness that they're going to receive. I can see the idea of the crown, because I think it's even mentioned in the, the letter to the Hebrews. But what about this belt? Where do we get our belt if we're a royal priesthood? Well, the rabbis look at Job 12, 18. And in the Midrash, they say, we know that the Israelites were girded with belts when they received the Torah. As it states, he loosened the belts of kings and fastened a belt around their loins. He took a belt off of kings and then put it around the the loins of the Israelites. And and we'll we'll unpack that a little bit more. But in Ephesians 6.14, Paul is telling us, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth truth so there there is truth in the belt and there's going to be authority in the belt because if a king is wearing it this is a special kind of belt and this belt is telling you there is authority in it so it's saying the belts of certain kings were removed and they were put on the Israelites okay think of your journey you were saved then he brought you to Sinai he says okay now i want you to receive my instructions And you said, hopefully, I'll do that. I'll learn and I'll obey. And from there, that empowering of the Holy Spirit, the fire and the smoke and the the things that the Israelites observed, we can also see that in Acts chapter two, which commemorates the giving of the Torah at Shavuot, also the fire, the power of the Holy Spirit, empowering them to go out to the nations and do what they need to do next to be that light to the nations. So the idea is from Sinai, then you're going to grow up. You're going to grow in respect to the word because that's what you promised to do, isn't it? Why is it we always ask God to keep his promises, but we never really think about what we promised him. (laughs) But he's going to nurture us in the wilderness. We are going to grow in respect to our salvation. Our desire for him will grow the more word we put in us. Would you guys agree the more word that's in you, the more you desire him? All right. So, From there, he's going to bridge you into the next step. He's going to bridge you into a Sukkot. He's going to bridge you into the fall feast. He's going to take you into the land where you're going to fully realize that righteousness, where you can live that resurrected life, spirit, soul, and body. Now, what's another context? Why are they saying, well, okay, that's kind of a vague statement in Job. Where else can we see that this relates to taking belts off of somebody else and putting them on the Israelites. Numbers 14, 7, and this is Caleb and Joshua talking to the Israelites who are now reluctant to go into the land. It says, they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel saying, the land which we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us a land which flows with milk and honey, which by the way, milk, honey, wine, and balsam are supposed to be the four things in the four rivers of Eden. So he's saying, you're about to get a taste of Eden if you will go in. See the size of these grapes? And they're saying, you see the size of the giants? And they're like, but no, look at the grapes. And they're like, no, look at the giants. But if he he's gonna be pleased with us, then we have to see what he sees. What is a giant to the one who created the earth? Nothing. He says, only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they will be our prey. Are we being obedient when we're afraid of our enemies? We're being disobedient. Let's just call it what it is. Now, I'll have to admit, I have been afraid of enemies before because I didn't know what I was gonna do. The Israelites here apparently don't know what they're gonna do, but they're not supposed to do anything. And neither are we. When we have an enemy, we are supposed to pray and obey. And then he goes before us. And he decides how he's going to take that enemy out. But here's what he says. Their protection has been removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And they're saying these two verses help us understand what the belt of truth is, this belt of authority. The Canaanite kings had the authority to dwell in the land of Canaan. They had that authority for the time being. But then there was going to come a moment, it says, when the the iniquity, the cup of iniquity will be full. I'm going to displace them. I'm going to put you in there. So all he had to do was take that belt of authority off of those Canaanite kings. And at Mount Sinai, when they said, we will do and we will hear, he puts those belts of authority on them. What the Israelites don't get here is they have the authority. They've got all the authority they need to march into the land and to march in untouched. And how many times have we seen an enemy before us? And all we could think about, all we could imagine is what that enemy would do to us when the truth is you'll march in untouched if you'll just do what he told you to do. He's already taken their belt off and put it on you. If they had any authority, he's removed it and put it on you if that's what he's called you to do. Now, can we get into situations where we decide what he wants us to do and he never said that? We can get into some problems here, but every year at Shavuot, when we, you know, a lot of times we don't know what to do with Shavuot as a feast. It doesn't have all the stuff that goes with Passover, it doesn't have all the stuff that goes with Sukkot. And we kind of look at Shavuot stuck out there, poor little thing, like, well, what do we do with Shavuot? Mm, eat dairy food. <laughs> okay, th- that doesn't sound that deep, but maybe it is. Maybe it is deeper than we think, especially if we're seeing it as the axis of our walk. And actually, this is when the rabbis say the righteous are sealed. The intermediates are what uh Yeshua calls the lukewarm in Revelation. They will have 10 days from Rosh Hashanah and the feast of trumpets to Yom Kippur when the gates close to repent. But you don't you don't want to be in that batch. You don't want to be in the 10-day batch. You want to hang on to these righteousness credits. You want to continue walking in that righteousness, learning and obeying. And at the moment you're resurrected, you will have now an incorruptible body that's not even going to strive against the commandments. Whatever's left, it'll be okay at that point. But what if you rebelled like Caleb and Joshua said? What if you rebelled? I don't know what the answer is to that. It might throw you over into the 10-day group where you've got some repenting to do. But every year at Shavuot, it's as if you also are accepting the yoke of the Torah anew. Just like we tell the Passover story anew, as if we were there. This is what happened to me when I came out of Egypt. At Shavuot, you personally say, I will do, I will hear. Or if you're a little scared, you say, I will hear and I will do. <laughs> and they say, God considers it as if you had never sinned. it. It goes back to the righteousness credits. And they say, this is why there's a a disparity. The two mentions of the Musaf offerings, everybody know what Musaf is? The The additional offering for the feast days, you bring an additional offering. And so it's described in Numbers 28.30 and Leviticus 23.17. Leviticus 23.17 will say, you'll bring a goat for a sin offering for atonement. But as you make it over to Numbers 28.30, it just says, you will bring a goat for atonement. It doesn't specifically mention the word sin. And they say, it's not random. It's not a mistake. It's not, you know, Moses overlooked that. There's a difference between the two passages to send us a message that even though we have sinned since we were saved, and even though we will continue to sin, hopefully not voluntarily, nevertheless, it is counted as though we never did. If we will stand there and with full hearts say we will do and we will hear. And we've we've got, I don't want to say the luxury, but we've got the confidence that just like Abraham, these righteousness credits are in our account. So we don't have to live like Tom Petty's refugees, <laughs> like, you know, oh my goodness, I sinned, you know, I'm going to go to hell. You don't you don't have that. What you have is the assurance is I can repent, I can pick myself up, dust myself off, and I can try this one again. So it's, it's seen in Judaism as a, another day, like Yom HaKippurim, when your sin is wiped away. And so at Shavuot, it's imagine when we arrive there, you're going to receive this crown and belt with the fire of the Holy Spirit, with the fire of the Ruach HaKodesh. So anything that, that is set before you, that has been decreed for you going forward, for that year. It is going to strengthen you. You're going to tighten up at Shavuot. That's the point of Shavuot. What do I do? I tighten up. I tighten up my belt. I make sure my shoes are laced up. I make sure I've got my walking stick for all the dogs, right? (laughs) (laughs) And so it strengthens you in that commitment. And this this is the, the message of Acts chapter two. Don't try to walk in these commandments on your own. You won't do it. If you're trying to walk in them without the power of the Holy Spirit, you won't do it any more than the Israelites did. But we need to open up our holy places so that the the fire and the water can rush in. Because if our father Abraham received righteousness credits, so do we. If we are his children, we also have them. So Shavuot is the point in your journey when you should start growing from milk to solid food. Why do you eat dairy products? Well, the milk and the honey of the word. But as for babies, it's ice cream, right? But at Sinai, if you've got this willingness to do and to hear, then what you're saying is, I want to continuously receive the word of Moses. I want to continuously receive Yeshua. Is there really any difference between Moses and Yeshua? Just the way we view the same thing. We need the salvation of Yeshua to have the confidence to walk in the words of Moses. He says, remember Moses so that they will remember you forever. How can we remember Moses forever apart from Yeshua? So the ruach is, it comes down on Shavuot in a special way. We've talked about the holy spaces and special things that happen at the feasts. And so that's where you're supposed to to get that extra boost That's going to boost you from Shavuot over to the fall feast so that that sealing that he has already given you, it'll still be present there at the resurrection of the dead, that you won't be one of the lukewarm. And this is why we read 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, because Paul is rebuking congregation, a congregation here. He says, I cannot speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh. As to infants and Messiah, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. So you can hear the word all day. You can study Torah day and night. You can stay up all night on Shavuot reading Torah. Is it going to help you if you don't receive it? Absolutely not. Is it hard to feed Brielle sometimes if she doesn't want to eat? Mm -hmm. Where does the food end up? (laughs) On the floor. Well, that's what we don't want to do. We don't want him trying to, you know, continually spoon feed us or get us to at least eat a Cheerio. And we're just chunking it everywhere. He says, okay, you're back to the bottle. Here we go. He says, since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? See, we shouldn't be mere men. The promise of the, the land of milk and honey In the land of milk and honey, you were not mere men. You were in a semi-supernatural, semi-immortal state. In that cloud, shoes didn't wear out, clothes didn't wear out, supernatural food, supernatural water. They'd get in trouble when they rebelled. So he's trying to work these things out and grow us up so that when we do cross over the Jordan, then we're going to be the grown-ups that we will have received the word. So Revelation 12 through 18, we can see Yeshua wearing the sash. And I actually skipped one of the slides, Alan. If you're trying to keep up, I'll probably back up to it. It says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. Adam and Eve were terrified of the voice walking in the cool of the evening. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet. Remember, the feet are the place where heaven and earth meet. That's why the alabaster uh, study that we did, the footsteps to the coffin, really getting down into the alabaster and the feet and how they connect the two realms. He's girded across his chest. With a golden sash. And with golden, think of the golden menorah. It's pure. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. Snow represents judgment. Storehouses of snow reserved against the day of judgment. The Proverbs 31 woman, it says, her household has no fear of the snow, for they are all clothed in scarlet. Scarlet is seen as the the color of redemption. And so because her household is covered in the redemption of Yeshua, they have no fear of the snow of the judgment that's coming, especially with the fall feasts. It says his eyes were like a flame of fire. Again, it makes us think of the menorah. And where was he standing? In the middle of the menorah. Does anybody remember from workbook one what the number four represents? Government, Government. authority, spiritual authority. So if Yeshua was the one in the middle, it tells you everything came from Him. Everything branched out from Him. His feet are like burnished bronze. Bronze is the color, or the the substance of the brazen altar. When it has been made to glow in a furnace, which is exactly what it does. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. Okay, the rivers of Eden, the four rivers of Eden. But it was the voice that terrified Adam and Eve. Because like he told them at Sukkot, he identified himself with the rivers of Eden. He identified himself with the Holy Spirit. In his right hand, he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. The sun was created on fourth day. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. All right, that's not a random statement. The rabbis go back to why did the Israelites reverse their offer and go from we will do and we will hear to we will hear and we will do. They say after the first two commandments, after each one of those, they would fall down dead, like a dead man. And then Adonai would resurrect them. And a couple of times of that, and they went to Moses and says, Moses, you go and talk to him. And then you come back and, and tell us what he said. Because if we hear any anymore, we'll, we'll die. We'll just keep dying. And John has this same experience. He says, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Adam and Eve were afraid. We don't have to be afraid because he is resurrected. He says, I'm the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. So because he resurrected, we can also resurrect. And because he resurrected, we can stand in the presence and hear the commandments. Because he resurrected, we can walk and we can grow in the commandments. And and so this is really just a process as we walk through the wilderness of the people, receiving these credit crowns, the people speaking with one voice, what's happening here. They're saying we will walk in this righteousness. We will learn it. We will practice it. And that will make us experienced in it. How many of you are a little more experienced today than you were a year ago in the Torah? You, You get things that were a little not so clear, a year, five years, or 10 years, or 15 or 20 years. Now it's just clear it's it's part of you, but it, it takes a while to learn and to practice righteousness. Just like Yeshua said, Depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice Torahlessness. Well, it also takes a while to learn to practice righteousness, but he knows us. If we love him and our desire is going, growing in him, then he's going to take us from student to teacher, which is what the apostles' whole point was. I'm training you to be teachers. I'm not going to teach you indefinitely. I got to go home. He said, (laughs) I got to go get that crown. I've I've had this credit crown on. Now I want to go get the real one. I have to train you to be teachers. So so quit nursing on the milk. Quit arguing, in other words. You know, the, the more we argue, the more we're babies. And that's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. He says, I fought the fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown a righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to have all who have loved his appearing. Are you looking forward to his appearing? Well, if you love his appearing, then wouldn't you behave as though you did every day? Would you act as though, oh, he's not coming back anytime soon? <laughs> no, he's not going to judge me. But right here, Paul's calling him the righteous judge. He knows righteousness when he sees it. He knows laziness. He knows a lazy servant when he sees a lazy servant. Not kind words for lazy servants. It's not all peace, love, and casseroles on judgment day. We, we need to quit only portraying the Holy One as love and peace because we have a generation unprepared for judgment, righteous judgment. So we want to prepare for it. We want to prepare to receive that crown. It's not our righteousness. We, we desire the crown. But if we desire the crown, it's saying we desire his righteousness. Because in Revelation, don't you see the elders casting their crowns down? They say, that's not mine. I didn't invent righteousness. I didn't decide what righteousness was. They're saying this crown belongs to the Holy One. And so that's what we're hoping to attain to. Not that it's my crown, that I got it with my righteousness, because you're walking on credit anyway. What do we say? Yeah. Yeah. So he said, oh, "Nice car, yeah. Me and the bank on it." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, right now, you and the Holy One—you know—you're walking in that righteousness, but it's His. It's always going to be His righteousness that He allows you to wear. And so, these these crowns were thought to have been taken from the throne of glory itself, which is why there was such a high price to pay in terms of obedience. It's thought like loosening the belt of these kings. Putting them on the Israelites. If he takes the crown from the throne itself and he puts these crowns upon his people, these crowns of righteousness, then in what universe could you ever bow to another king? If you're wearing a crown of righteousness directly bestowed from the throne of glory, could you ever bow your knee to another God or another king? You couldn't. This is what's in your credits. Right now, that's what you're walking in. So don't be afraid of what the government's gonna do. Don't be afraid of what the medical system's gonna do to you. Don't be afraid of how sports is completely corrupting our kids. Don't be afraid of any of these things. Otherwise, it's an act of rebellion. Isn't that what Caleb and Joshua said? Do not fear them. He's taken their power and he's put it on us. Any authority the principalities and powers have it's not higher than the authority you're wearing. You're wearing the righteousness of Yeshua. You have on your head, on credit, a crown of righteousness. It should not make you arrogant. It should make you confident that there is no ruler, there is no government, there is no system on this earth before whom you need to kneel, bow, or be afraid. And they say that when you receive, like, at the end of days, when you're resurrected, this crown's going to go on your head. Or maybe you're just finally going to see it. I don't know. Maybe it's been riding up there on credit all along. You just couldn't see it. But we know for sure he's going to put that crown of righteousness on your head when you're resurrected. And as one of the sealed from Shavuot, like I said, I don't know what to tell you about the 10-day people. I don't know exactly. But if you were among those sealed at Shavuot, and you're resurrected from the dead with the greater body of Messiah, at Rosh Hashanah. You receive that crown. You'll finally realize who you are. And then what's going to happen? These powers and principalities that he's shaking out of the way in Revelation, now you assume your responsibilities. That's what you're doing right now. You are preparing to assume your responsibilities. You are protected because of the source of your crown and the source of your belt. And B'zrat Hashem, one day we will rule and reign with King Messiah with the very same crown and belt, he's already given us some credit. And they say one of the advantages of of having that belt on is that extreme presence wouldn't kill you. That was part of the girding about is you could stand in that divine presence. Now you couldn't do it in rebellion. We saw that with Nadav and Avihu. You couldn't just rebel and go in anyway, just like the Israelites. They couldn't just say, oh yeah, now we'll go to the, you know, into the land and go, well, they just got their hand ends handed to them it's it's a high cost. Sure. It's a lot of responsibility, but this is how we atone. This is how we help cover. This is what Yeshua taught us to do. When you gird yourself with a belt, it's going to symbolize strength, not just strength, but enthusiasm for what he's called you to do. See, when you put a belt on, it's not just a random belt. There's truth in that built, but within that truth of the scriptures, have you ever looked in the word and said, but I don't know how this helps me today. I don't know what to do with this particular situation. What do I do? The Torah is like, it's, it speaks a lot of times in generalities, but I don't know what to do in this specific situation. You search the scriptures. What do I do? Well, this is what prayer is for. Remember, we pray and obey. We pray and obey. And so the belt, as you tighten it up, as you it doesn't mean you don't look in the Word. It means you continue to look in the Word. Maybe you miss something. But you tighten that belt of truth around you. You tighten the Word. The more trouble you're in, the more your head should be between the pages, right? Or looking at your phone, wherever your Bible is nowadays. <laughs> because that belt of truth that's around you is going to enable you to go through that specific situation. The example of this is 1 Kings 18, 44 through 46. Remember the interaction here between Elijah and Ahab. He said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy shower does not stop you. Probably two horses. How many of you can run faster than a horse? Because I want to watch. <laughs> he says, in a little while, the sky grew black with clouds and wind and there was a heavy shower. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. That's not a short trip, not a short trip. But yet a human being was given supernatural power. And you know what? That power will not be supernatural. It'll be natural once you're resurrected. It'll be the horses trying to keep up with you. I mean, that's what's happening here. The horses can't keep up with Elijah. Imagine when you are, your body is restored, And you can gird up your loins. And he says, okay, I don't know. Maybe he's gonna say, Jimmy, I want you to go to Laurel County. And you're like, all the way from Jerusalem. He's like, saddle up, son. (laughs) I got something I want you to go do in Laurel County. And you will run. You'll outrun anything to go do his will. You'll outrun everything to take care of the mission. And so let's go back to, he was girded across his chest with a golden sash. The rabbis look at this. And they're associating this belt with the menorah and the incense service. Both of these things are located in the holy place. So again, think of that water rushing into the cave. It's very strong right there. Not as strong as the holy of holies, but still very strong. It wiped out Nadav and Avihu. And it struck um, Zachariah, struck him dumb until he wrote, his name is John. (laughs) (laughs) I get it now. I can't play with the Holy Spirit in here. But they're looking at wordplay. And it's from Deuteronomy 5, 27 through 29. And Moses is reminding the people of this experience at Mount Sinai. He says, the Lord heard the voice of your words. He hears our voice too. He's not terrified, but he hears our voice. When you spoke to me and the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people, which they have spoken to you. They have done well. Hey, Tivu in Hebrew, they have done well in all that they have spoken. So whether they said, we will do and we will hear, or we will hear and we will do, which whatever it takes, he says, it's good. It's tov. The word there is tov. Tov means good. The days of creation were declared good, tov. He says, oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would always fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. Right? And so they point out the similarity here in Exodus 35 through 7 when he's describing the incense service in relation to the menorah. He says, uh, Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. So the the incense service, the prayer service, the incense was the prayer service when he trims the lamps, when he dresses the lamps. That word there for trim in English is, ta, to, tet, vet. It means good. So it's the same two-letter root. And as you look it up, yata it means to be accepted, to amend, to use a right, to benefit, to make better. But I like to be beautiful. When you do something good, it's beautiful. When you work in the power of the Holy Spirit and you offer a prayer as incense on behalf of others. It's beautiful when you do that. It makes things better when you do that. It's Tov, It's good. Imagine the opportunities we have when we pray for other people. We may feel like, ah, I'm just a drop in the bucket. No, you're not. You're a royal priest with a credit crown on your head and a belt around your waist of truth. And you're walking in righteousness. Is he going to listen to you? Absolutely. You're in the holy place and you're making things better. You're making things successful. It doesn't mean every answer will be yes, but it still means that whatever happens, you're making it better just by bringing that incense of prayer. The menorah, service, and the prayer are intertwined. And this is how part of how we can fulfill our vow. We say, we will do and we will hear. We will Be this nation of royal priests. We will do it. When we pray for other people, we are making good on that promise. Because that's what did. You, He's going to do what he says. Are we going to do what we say? Do we lift up one another in prayer? Because as we see, the, the disciples, the apostles, they went out into the nations and they took that menorah out into the nations. And they became that atonement for the other nations. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook and our YouTube channel.